0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is Meet the Composer.
2: listen, for me, it works that way. I listen and I find the material. Because you can imagine the way that you would look at a landscape from above, rather than from a horizontal view. And then you can think, oh, how can I listen to the music from a horizontal view? The same view, how does it then sound, looking at it from above? So it can go from being a lyrical structure from a horizontal view to a cluster from an overview.
3: Anna Thorvaldsdottir composes elegant tapestries of sound with a seductive gravity, pulling you into their orbit and keeping you wrapped with slowly revolving texture and color, seeing you through complex structures with a deft hand. She is also, as you might have gathered from the patronymic, from Iceland.
2: along the shoreline for a reason because inland it's really too hostile even to live because the weather is very extreme there are glaciers and mountains you know volcanoes the lava fields they're very dangerous you know you can't just take a walk in a lava field because there are so many cracks, and if you fall down, you're not going to get out. You are really on the outskirts of something so powerful. You feel how small you are.
3: There's an arrogance to how we address the environment. We believe everything is there for our use. We commodify oceans and turn mountains into profits. I live in New York City. The rivers are hubs for containerized shipping, cruise ships, and warships. Central Park is a triumph of landscape architecture with its carefully plotted ponds, hills, and climbing rocks oriented to accommodate the flow of foot and bicycle traffic, maximized for usable leisure acreage. We react to snowstorms, hurricanes, and their storm surges with outrage. We blame the government for not controlling the situation better. Our grip on the planet is so airtight, we forget how small, how helpless we actually are.
2: Even though you're not thinking about it consciously all the time, it finds its way into the, you know, into who you are. And you're a very insignificant part of it, but you're a part of it nevertheless.
3: Anna Thorvaldsdottir grew up in a really small um, town. It's
2: called Borgarnes. That
3: before they built a tunnel was about an hour and a half away from Reykjavik. Later
2: they did a tunnel, so now it's only forty minutes.
3: Iceland only has a population of about three hundred twenty thousand people, but of that, two hundred thousand live in the Reykjavik area. Borgarnes is a town of about two thousand people. By contrast. Borgarnes is on a peninsula poking out into a bit of ocean, which is kind of cradled in a small mountain range.
2: Yeah, it's it's actually a really beautiful uh, place, landscape-wise. I grew up to the view of these these beautiful mountains. They're they're not that high, but they're really beautiful, and they kind of frame the the town a little bit. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful sight. But when you're Little, you you don't think about it, it's just the way the world is. You know, it looks like that, it looks beautiful. Yeah, growing up there was very inspirational. But, you know, it's not easy growing up in a small town, though, I can tell you that.
3: How many people were your age in, in grade school?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, so every class was approximately 20 to 30 kids mine was always the smallest we were between 15 and 20 um so not many people um which is of course not very nice when you're growing up you want to have like bigger things you want cities and you want to you know you want to go to Reykjavik as much as you can and you know and then that's not enough and you want to go out to the country (laughs) you know but yeah very small
3: That's interesting because, like, 15 to 30, like, that's Mm -hmm. the average size, I would say, of, like, most elementary school classes in the U.S. But the idea that that's it. It. Yeah, yeah. that's
2: it. Yeah, (laughs) that's it in the town. (laughs) Anna came
3: from a musical family. Well,
2: my mom is a music teacher and her sister as well. My grandmother, she's not, she didn't work with music, but she's very musical. And when my mom and her siblings were growing up, every week they had these nights where they would get together and sing for a couple of hours. I like that, you know, different times, you know, they didn't have TV or anything. So it was just a combination of Icelandic songs that probably she learned from her parents or something. It definitely, uh, sometimes it sounds a bit rough, I think. Like, Ísland far from. og hagsælda hrýmkvita móðir. Hvar er þín I, th- I think it's a bit harsh what does it mean um, well it's a kind of a song about like Iceland <laughs> about the the nature in Iceland and uh, I think it's a kind of song that you are appreciating mother Earth and the harshness of it
3: What I find so cool about these old Icelandic songs is that they really remind me of organum, which is a super early type of polyphony. And polyphony just means music for more than one voice at a time. Maybe you saw on the internet recently that they just found a new, oldest known polyphonic composition, which sounds like this. So this piece, they dated from the early 10th century. Iceland was also settled by Vikings in the early 10th century. So my hunch is that this is not a coincidence. So Anna, when she was little, under the guidance of her mom and her aunt tried a lot of different musical instruments, piano, flute, Even trumpet
2: trumpet a little bit. Um, And then I found the cello. Um, And I kind of always knew that I really wanted to play a string instrument. And I always loved the cello, but there was no teacher that could teach cello there. Um, So when I was 12 years old, I I finally said to my mom, like, I really want to study the cello.
3: But Borgernes didn't have a cello teacher.
2: So I started playing the cello with a violin teacher. So it very quickly just became my instrument of passion.
3: Did you um, find that the instruments before then, it was a casual relationship?
2: Yes. Yeah. Early, I really wanted to know um, a lot of different instruments. I wasn't composing, but there was more like, you know, research than passion, I think, the other instruments. to a lot of rock and pop music to be honest I didn't really listen to a lot of classical music and by no means did I listen to contemporary music when I was growing up
3: who was your favorite musician when you were like 13 oh my goodness
2: uh, that mm, what would that have been like I remember listening to a lot of electronic kind of drum and bass <laughs> of heavy rhythmic stuff. I remember always being really interested in it and none of my friends were. <laughs> it was really kind of <laughs> odd, odd one out.
3: So, following her desire for bigger cities and a more cosmopolitan life, Anna eventually found herself in college in Reykjavik.
2: I was studying the cello at the music school in Reykjavik. I was always making up songs and things like that, but then I was starting to kind of flirt with the the notation and writing out my own music. So I took a composition class in that music school with a composer named John Spade, and I was really scared. I was so scared, you know, going into a composition class and showing him what I was doing. And, you know, having to show somebody what you're doing is completely different than writing something and put it in a drawer and just keep it for herself, but when i got his encouragement and he encouraged me to you know do more and then i i just knew i can't be without this this is something i need to do and uh, i'm always very thankful to him for his encouragement so that's where i started i was 19 or 20 or something
3: Anna ended up getting her Bachelor's of Music and Composition in Reykjavik. And after taking a couple years off to write, she decided she needed to leave the country in order to pursue her work further.
2: I knew I would want to move away from Iceland. Then me and my husband, we decided to go to the U.S. because it was really good for both of our fields. I knew a a few people who had gone to UCSD and really liked it. And I really liked the the. Experimental openness of UCSD, and they they have so much contemporary music. So I was very happy to go there. Who did you study with there? Uh Rand
1: Steiger. i Rand Steiger. He was I'm a, a very,
2: very, very good teacher for me. I really appreciated my time with at him.
1: UC San Diego. Uh, when I first encountered her, she was somewhat shy. She didn't talk a lot, and It took time to get to know her, but with the music, that speaks immediately and persuasively.
2: He was really good at helping me be who I needed to be.
1: In a way, you hear her personality in the music more than you do when you first interact with her. Because so much of who she is is this very internal kind of expression that she has that that comes out through the music. Anna hears music internally very naturally with little effort to conjure it up. Everything she encounters in the environment around her provokes musical responses. So when we first started working together, it was difficult for her to discuss this because her internal process is completely about sound and doesn't involve words.
2: You know, getting input on how to talk about your music, how to represent things with words that I was maybe struggling with at some point.
1: She thinks in sound. And so for me, the challenge was how to develop a vocabulary that we could communicate through without disrupting her internal process.
4: I
2: don't think about music with words. I have to translate, definitely. Because it's easier as a composer to just write the music and, you know, not having to use the words. Uh, That was something he helped me with a lot. It's a different type of... I wouldn't even say thinking. It's a different type of feeling and living the music. And, of course, you have all these ideas, and you can always talk about the ideas, but then the music kind of takes over and it becomes something different.
1: When she came in with a new piece, when when she... Reached that moment where she really knew what she wanted the piece to do and she put the score down on the desk or even sometimes the scores were so big and vast that we would lay them out on the floor and she would start to describe to me what she was doing in the piece and this level of excitement would emerge this energy would emerge that only happened when she was talking about a new piece and you know, it's just this incredible excitement about this finally happening, this thing that she had imagined that, that now was finding form.
5: It's
2: just something that I can't be without. It's something I have to do. It's It's that deep passion that really, you know, I can't escape and I don't want to escape. I always thought I was going to become a cellist, but somehow it just gradually gave in. I mean, because I was starting to spend more and more time on composing. I don't feel that it was ever a choice because I don't feel that I could actually have made that choice. I would be very busy and I would work a lot, be very ambitious, and just hope that things work out. And um, I feel like I'm still doing that, you know, just working hard.
3: When we come back, we'll talk about language, whispers, and
1: lighting. Stay tuned. At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music, can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Tune in, won't you? Find us online at q2music.org.
3: When linguistics-minded people discuss languages that are difficult to learn, you always get like Basque, Finnish, Mandarin, Arabic, and most relevant to this show, Icelandic. Icelandic is hard to grasp for a number of reasons. But most notably, number one, this language is pretty archaic. The cliche is that Icelanders can read 10th century epic poetry with the ease that we read Shakespeare. Although, native speakers have told me that that's a pretty significant exaggeration. Icelandic does have all sorts of ancient quirks and crazy declensions. It feels like it wasn't workshopped as thoroughly as other European languages. Number two, there aren't a whole lot of non-native Icelandic speakers. The vast majority of those proficient in the language learned it as little babies. So there's a lot less reliable pedagogy on the subject. I've spent quite a bit of time in Iceland and, for a while, learning people's names even. I just, I couldn't get my mouth around these sounds. It seemed like the language was all about subtleties I couldn't even hear. When I would sound out a word and hear it pronounced, the two words bore little resemblance. So if you remember a few years ago, there was a volcano that erupted in Iceland, and the joke all around the world was that its name name was completely unpronounceable. There were tons of news sketches and comedy bits about it. I even saw it referred to multiple times as as just a, like, home row keyboard smash, all A's and L's and what what have you. So to read the name of that volcano as accurately as I can, in my (laughs) American-accented way, I'd say... (inaudible) <inaudible> oh my God. Now, that's not actually how it sounds pronounced by an Icelander. <inaudible> <inaudible> they kind of mumble, for lack of a better term. The most helpful hint eventually came from my friend Ben Frost. He told me, if you're engaging your vocal cords, you're doing it wrong. Try practicing words under your breath. The whole language is kind of a whisper.
2: Fjärjellová. <inaudible>
3: I don't know if you guys know about ASMR. There was a great This American Life episode about it, if you're interested. But essentially, it's an online community of people who get a pleasant physical sensation from listening to very quiet sounds or whispers. Very little digging yielded a ton of ASMR videos in Icelandic. This whispered quality, this ability to hear very small textural differences as very significant. I believe this is a real through line among Icelandic artists. There are some things some languages can do that others simply can't.
2: It's sort of a tongue twister.
3: Is there anything different about the way that Icelandic is put together versus English um, that you feel like affects the way that you might think of things? Like we always talk about idioms and, and certain things that just don't translate. So what's something that doesn't translate?
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah. I'm sure it does it affects you, of course, the way because you think in a different language that you speak, um, things that do, do not translate. Um,
3: so, like for example, I I remember taking a cab home really late at night one like Saturday night after, and, mm-hmm. the, and the ground was frozen. You know, so it was very very slippery. Yeah, and I was like, oh, what's the Icelandic word for black ice? And people were like, what are you talking? Black ice. I right, black ice. Um. So yeah. we talk about when the when the road is frozen, but it still looks like it's just wet. But it's like oh. a very treacherous thing. We call this black ice because it's um, yeah, yeah, yeah something that you don't necessarily read as ice. It doesn't look like ice, yeah. but it's very dangerous. Yeah. Um,
2: I'm trying to think because I'm not, I, we have so many different words for frost and um and ice. For example, a title of one of my, one of my pieces. Well, I guess maybe that has like an English root, but still you have a word that describes like the entire process of frost crystals forming on a surface, you know, and um what is like that, that word? Rime. So it's a very short word. Yeah. And you know immediately that it means uh, like you have a drop that freezes like this and <laughs> forms a frost crystals. Yeah.
3: This piece, Hrim, spelled H-R-I-M, comes from a record of Anna's called rhizoma, rhizome in English, which means, according to Wikipedia, a continuously growing horizontal underground stem that puts out lateral shoots at adventitious roots and intervals. A continuous horizontal stem. You can totally hear this in her music. In a lot of Anna's pieces, there is a sort of drone or a common tone or a texture that flows through the whole work, propelling it inexorably forward.
5: My first uh, impression of Iceland getting off the plane was how intense the wind is or can be in the Reykjavik area. My name is Ross Carr, and I'm the percussionist and director of production for the International Contemporary Ensemble, ICE. There's nothing to inhibit the wind. In fact, there's not really trees on Iceland except those that are planted. So the, the wind has a constant drone quality. Uh, it's not just physically constant, but also sonically. And I think most of Anna's music has a similar constant drone, some sort of reciting tone or... Texture that creates the bed of the environment. I wanna speak for her, but I would say that the experience of being on the outskirts of Reykjavik is
0: is very similar to that experience that she creates with those drones. I think that there's an economy in the way that she writes. My name is Doyle Armbrust. I'm violist for Spectral Quartet. There's a lot of big open chords. Um and a lot of times these sort of substrata of of drones that are happening, and there's an effect that that has it sort of it lights up something primal inside you that feels big rather than the music just being loud anna 's music, I think you know I go to so many concerts and listen to so many CDs every week and in most cases, I feel like I'm listening to something. In the case of Anna's music, I always feel like I'm in the middle of it. Um, that it's it's really something that I'm awash in.
3: This piece, in the light of air, was a collaboration between Anna and the International Contemporary Ensemble, and it includes a whole bunch of extra musical elements. Kind of the most striking of these is really detailed lighting design. Anna works
5: a lot with installation. Um, She creates an otherworldly environment. And as a result, she's very much considering the parameters of the relationship of an audience to a performer. And this has everything to do with the proximity of the ears of the audience to the sources of the sound and also the visual design of of the gestures of the performers and their lighting.
2: I've always personally been very interested in the visual aspects of concerts.
5: Anna's ability to, to look at a space and convert it into an environment is a really important feature of her compositional method.
3: Five artists are sitting in a circle. A percussionist, a harp player, a pianist, a violist, and a cellist. The audience surrounds them and their instruments. Suspended from the ceiling is a constellation of a few dozen bare, round light bulbs pulsating dimly in chorus with the percussion. So as the bass drum pulses, the lights flicker with it. The musicians breathe deeply as they play, and their amplified breaths are mirrored with sweeps of bleary light. You can't help but be drawn in. This is not music experienced passively. a pulls landscape up around you from all the corners of the room. As a listener, you're somehow complicit in this. Your body, your physical mass, has become a part of the performance.
5: She's looking for a sense of closeness and proximity. So that no no listener can sort of excuse themselves from the experience, that this experience is an exchange between an audience member and a performer.
2: To me, it's a very, you know, you have all these performers, and you have the hall, and, you know, there are so many things you can do to make it like an extra-atmospherical thing. Um... So I'm very interested in, you know, working with the lighting and the stage and I really believe in in enhancing the experience by, you know, doing something extra. I just really wanted to find an extra visual layer to present musically. So to me the lights are in fact an instrument. An instrument you can see.
3: One of the hardest things, maybe the hardest thing, about creating something, whether you're writing a piece of music or a piece of fiction, is getting the idea from your head, where it can kind of wriggle around and move in and out of focus and maybe even disappear if you're not careful, to a fixed place, an external place, somewhere where it can be developed and fine-tuned but not forgotten. The process of taking an idea from initial impulse to paper That can be a pretty precarious moment for that idea. Imagine writing a piece for symphony orchestra. In your brain, 80 players are all working together to create this gesture, this meta-gesture. And the amount of time it takes to imagine it, a second or two, compared to the amount of time it takes to write out all of its components, let's say generously 30 minutes, is really tough to swallow. There's just way too much latency. So when Anna writes, she sketches out her ideas in pictures.
2: Oh, yeah. I do a lot of sketches because the music is so... Mm. The, mu- the music happens on the inside and you can't get, possibly get it out in notation in real time because it takes a while to note it. Uh, so for me, sketches are very important to do that, to kind of preserve the ideas. I carry books and books and have my walls covered in paper and, uh, to be able to remember the music. I do sketches like that.
3: What, what do the sketches look like?
2: Uh, Some of them look like pictures, I guess. Uh, Others, just a lot of words, descriptions. Most of the time, both, like pictures and uh, words.
3: So the sketches are for you, and then the notation is for the the players?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because nobody would ever be able to uh, understand or listen to the sketches like I can I mean I can look at my sketches and actually listen to them because I know what each thing represents to anyone else it it would not necessarily do that um
3: you write for a lot of really large forces yes um what is so appealing about (laughs) these unwieldy ensembles
2: yeah, you know, I have I I have this passion for texture and structures and um for me the orchestra and uh large ensembles it's it's a really good way to present that and I just really love to be able to write details on so many levels, you know, having so many instruments and writing out really detailed materials for each and every one is just something I really really love doing
3: Oh, what's I mean I, th- I think one of the things that's most exciting to me about your music is it is so detailed but there's um it doesn't ever seem mm-hmm. fussy like I'm not overwhelmed by people are doing so many different things that I just yeah, yeah. can't process it and I end up like seeing white noise mm-hmm. doesn't feel that way at all it feels very directional I always trust you to to bring me somewhere um but the colors are pretty extraordinary um and I guess I would love for you to just talk to me a bit about about texture. What makes your music so, um, like, chewy, like, toothsome? What makes it so full?
2: Yes, thank you, by the way. <laughs> it's a very beautiful way to describe it. Um, I So what I love doing and what I do a lot in my music is that... Um, I really like working with timbre and texture on an individual instrumental level, because for me, I think about the the nuances and the sounds. I think about them like melodies. I, I think about the the sounds and um, and effects. I guess you know. People call them effects. I think about these as melodies and I allow them to move from one instrument to the next and I create these waves of sounds between the instruments so that they are kind of presenting the same elements and textures but in, in sort of waves. And then, also one thing I really do a lot is, is to morph materials, you know, find ways for different elements and different sounds to speak to each other and become one another through um, a natural progression.
3: Do you find yourself doing a lot of editing? Do you go back to old pieces and change them, or do you sort of let them stay where they were?
2: I let them stay, always. Um, it, it, well, I, I edit a lot, a lot, so much editing all the time. But when they're ready and done, they're done. And then, of course, like four years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, I would now I would do this this way or that way. But I allow them to be what they were when I wrote them. I've always done that. I don't know if I will will always do that, but up until now, I've always allowed them to be the way they are. Um,
3: so are you satisfied
2: with your work once it's done? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try to never uh, finish a piece until I'm satisfied. Actually, one thing I always do is that when I have a deadline for a commission... Um, my deadline is always at least two months earlier. Because I need to know that the piece is ready. Uh, And I don't know if the piece is ready if it's not ready for at least a few weeks until I have to hand it in. And this just has something to do with myself and I have to feel the resonance of the music in its absolutely finished format until I'm ready to say, okay, you can go out in the world now. And so... um, satisfied I mean I at least I always am very true to the things I'm doing each time I guess that leaves me yeah satisfied in some ways and you can always think like, oh can I do this better or that better but at some point you just have to trust the music and trust that it's ready and I think it's more about trust than satisfaction really
3: we come back after the break we'll talk about landscape and physical size versus spiritual size stay tuned
5: Please listen to Q2 music responsibly. Do not listen for more than 16 hours without a break. Excessive listening may increase the severity of side effects. Side effects from listening to Q2 music may include excitement, trembling, euphoria, advanced neoconservative postmodernism, elevated pulse, existential joy, hypertrophic danceophilia, and in rare cases, polyrhythmic atonality. If any of these systems persist for more than four hours after you have stopped listening to Q2 music, consult a musicologist immediately.
3: Iceland, on some level, is actually responsible for this show, for Meet the Composer existing, at least in its current form. I met producer Alex Overington, who is very much my partner in crime on this show, when he was working as an intern at the studio in Iceland where I record for the record label Bedroom Community. Iceland holds sort of a magical sway for both of us. And as a result, this show has actually been really kind of hard to put together. There are so many Iceland-related tropes, worn-out phrases invoked whenever any lazy reporter talks about Bjork or Sigur Rós. They roll out that tired fact about how 50% of Icelanders believe in elves and speak with reverence about the power of the landscape. And, And we don't want to do that because it's just not really good enough. Iceland is old and new at the same time. It's some of the youngest land on Earth, geologically speaking. But as a result of that, it's all very much in the state that the Earth must have been in millions of years before we even got here. Iceland feels ancient. It's volcanic. It's living, molten Earth. And the country is literally fueled by it. The electricity is geothermal. The hot water comes right out of the ground. It's got glaciers, it's got mountains. The air is shocking and pure, and there's a sulfuric twinge to everything that's so pervasive, Icelanders don't even notice it. There are very few places left on this planet that didn't have the Industrial Revolution. Iceland is, mostly, hewn together by the planet, not by humans. In that way, it is alien. It is created by a non-human force. Iceland exists despite us. If Icelanders have a unique quality, it's a kind of humility. They exist in a world where the ultimate authority is nature, not government, not man. This makes a difference. Something kind of common to Icelanders, at least in this younger generation, is a kind of cyclical restlessness or wanderlust. As Anna put it earlier, when you're a little kid, the tininess of the island seems incredibly restrictive. And I think the instinct for a lot of people is to see the world. Icelanders are, by and large, some of the most well-traveled citizens I've ever met. It also might have something to do with their being perched right in the middle of the Atlantic. Invariably, though, I see Icelanders returning home.
4: Reykjavik is beautiful tonight. The air is calm and cool.
3: Casual browsing through Twitter accounts and Facebook posts yields the same idea, time after time.
1: My best. Nothing says no welcome home, home
3: quite like a raging storm. It's maybe a cruddy little attempt at the city, but I really sort of love it. So you feel like you're you're always going to be an ice under inside, or that's going to yeah, be a part of you.
2: I mean, I'm definitely just a resident of the world. I mean, I've I've. I feel I I feel really I mean and and because I've been traveling so much and I've lived in the US and I've lived in Iceland and for a little bit in Australia I feel like I'm um, I feel very comfortable uh everywhere but it's it's of course the roots are in Iceland and I and you always feel that a little bit of course in family and and so yeah I think so I I think that I'm always going to be an Icelander yeah. part
3: Um, One of the things I I love about flying into the airport there is that you you get there and there's a big sign in English that says, Welcome to Iceland. Mm -hmm. And then in Icelandic it says, Welcome home. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Which is sort of such a sweet thing, uh, just conceptually.
2: It is. And I was actually thinking the exact same thing when I got back last time. And they also say that on the plane.
4: Mm.
2: They say, in Icelandic, they say, uh, Welcome home. (laughs) Welcome in heim. And then they say to everybody, welcome to Iceland. Yeah. Uh, some people understand Icelandic and it's not home to them, but, you know, but it's beautiful. It's cute.
3: It is beautiful. Yeah.
2: Also, when I'm far away from Iceland, the elements in Iceland influence me a lot as well. In the winter, it's, you know, you go to work when it's dark. And you feel like it's the middle of the night and you come home from work and it's dark. So you don't really see the sun at all. And then in June, it's really, you know, the sun doesn't set. It's very dramatic. Mm. For example, I was staying in Australia for uh, 10 months. And it was really, it was so far away. But I really felt a connection to the elements in Iceland. And it was so different because then you have the opposite. You have the summer and the winter. And it's very (laughs) different, you know. And so it's very... um, yeah.
3: Was it, was it homesick or?
2: No, not homesick, but um, I don't know. It's very hard to describe, but you kind of, you feel the rhythm inside of you and it's different from the place you're staying at. So you're trying to find the kind of the balance between the two. I don't know. I, th- I think the reason I'm mentioning this is, is because it's very unforeseen and unpredictable the way inspiration works like that. And you can, you know, you take things in from the place you're staying in, but then you also realize that you have another kind of place that you're close to and things like that. inspiration for a reality was actually looking at a landscape and then turning that you know uh, on the side and you know looking at it from above and the difference from looking at the horizontal view and uh, the aerial view and you know from the underground view and so but that's of course only the inspiration, and then and then you put that into music, musical terms.
3: Music is different. Than yeah,
2: absolutely.
3: <laughs> so how how I mean, how do you put it into musical terms?
2: It's um, you just listen. You know, uh, for me, it works that way. I, I listen and I find the material, and then the inspiration helps with the technical things. Because you can imagine the way that you would look at a landscape from above rather than from horizontal view. And then you can think, oh, and how can I listen to the music from a horizontal view? And how does it then sound the same view? How, how does it sound looking at it from above?
3: So if you're looking at like a landscape and there's a rock on the landscape and horizontally, you sort of see it as an outline against the, yeah. against the sky. If you look straight yeah. on it, it's flat.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, and then underneath it, I don't even know what it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly and then in yeah and then it might have like a like some sort of earthy material going on whatever that means you know it means what you want it to mean for each piece um yeah so it can go from being like a, a lyrical structure from a horizontal view to a cluster from an overview you know things like that I wanted to work with with a sort of a structure, a material of music, that for me was moving from a very kind of a detailed, massive force and into a lyrical view of the same material, and you know, going through all these different uh, formats of the of the landscape, even in the music.
3: So, how do you think about orchestration with a piece like this? Um, does do the instruments come to you first, or do you have a of a idea of a sound and then you sort of try to put that onto these instruments
2: yeah I always have a very clear sense of the sound of the entire thing and and hear the you know how the flutes come into that and how the horns come into that and the strings Uh, so it to me is is it comes together almost and then I put it put it out, rather than putting out a single element and then orchestrating the rest. To me, it's more about the entire unity.
3: And at this point in your life, you think in in orchestral instruments
2: in a way? I think I do a little bit, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's bad. No, I think it's it's just something that's very natural to me. But that doesn't mean I really, really love working with smaller ensembles as well, but um, I, I always think about each piece with respect to the instrumentation I have. If I'm writing a piece for a trio or a quartet, I don't think about it with regards to the orchestra by no means. it just I just listen to the instruments that I have and the structure that wants to come out of that.
3: Well, that's probably helpful. I mean, that probably works well in, in a world where people are commissioning you to write pieces oh, for yeah. a certain ensemble.
2: The instruments are the initial point of departure in each piece.
3: It's so huge. It creates space, insists upon itself. And in a way, this is a kind of unexpected turn of events. We all know first impressions can be misleading. But Anna might be the best example of that ever. She's kind of a sorceress. A diminutive person capable of conjuring incredible forces.
2: It's it's funny, that, yeah, because there's not necessarily i think a uh, a connection between the physical appearance and the kind of spiritual uh, uh, appearance i think or appearance is not the right word but I've, i like the mind um so i don't know it's it's always been just very natural for me to work with the the, the bigger elements and the bigger things that i i, I just think it's it's um spirit thing. Not a spiritual thing, but a, a thing of the spirit.
3: Yeah, I love that actually, this idea that um, your spirit is, you know, tied into whatever body yeah. it's tied into, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily <laughs> follow. Exactly. So in a way, do you think that your music in some way describes sort of who you are?
2: I think it does. I, I absolutely think it does. And, um, uh, I know I'm very, I'm kind of petite, um, physically, and, uh, I think sometimes people kind of confuse that with everything, you know? Um, and especially if you're also a woman. But I think, yeah, that's who I am. I feel like my music says a lot about that.
3: Have you had any, um, you know, not trouble with being a woman, that sounds insane, but, (laughs) um, uh, you know, composition and classical music in some way has mm-hmm. been dominated pretty much by men for the past 500 years yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you felt that at all, or do you feel like you're you're living in a time when that doesn't matter?
2: I I have definitely had some experiences where I know that I would not get a comment or something like that if I weren't a woman, but... Right that said, I, I don't feel like I get that a lot I think we still have some way to go for it to be no problem at all but you know, I'm not complaining because I, I it's really it's been really good you know, in my case but yeah, you know if there are comments, there are things that you experience that you know, like I would not get that comment or that you know Treatment.
3: Right, or like that line in that review, yeah. or whatever.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, why?
3: Why do you want to keep writing music?
2: Oh, it's it's just something I have to do. It's not. I don't feel even that it's a choice. It's just for me. It's just a natural thing. It's it's just a part of who I am, and I need to do it.
4: This is Susan Ambrose from Concord, Massachusetts. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash composer Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sorota and Alexander Overington. Additional support was provided by Carolyn Chung, Hannes Brown, and Noah Kim. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our expert guests, Rand Steiger, Doyle Ambrost, Ross Carr, Quaker Magnuson, Daniel Bidjornasen, Borgar Magnuson, and Ben Frost, as well as to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization, founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks also to our Season 2 Kickstarter donors, including Richard Parry, Richard and Louis Pace, Porter Anderson, Emily Ann Gendron, Andrew Mason, and Ben Stanfield.